Hello, and welcome to another episode of Good Teaching with Dr. Toy and Ali. This is the podcast where we ask college instructors what are their most effective teaching strategies. And today we have a wonderful guest here with us today. We have Dr. Tega Edwin here. Dr. Tega Edwin is an award-winning career development researcher, educator, and speaker with over 10 years of experience in career consulting and education. She's the owner of Her Career Doctor, where she helps women who are unhappy at work get clear about who they are so they can find a fulfilling career and job search with confidence. Before starting her company, she worked as a career counselor for one of the largest career services centers in the nation. Dr. Edwin is a licensed professional counselor, a national certified counselor, a certified salary negotiation facilitator, and a certified clinical trauma specialist. So I am so honored and so happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Otega Edwin. Thank you. I am excited to be here with you. Yes, I'm so happy to have you. I've been like friends, like social media friends with you for a few years now. And I love uh-huh. watching your journey, watching you share and help women with their career. So we'll get into that later on in the interview. But I first want to talk more academic things. So mm-hmm. can we get like a brief little bio introduction to how you got into into your area? Like how'd you get your PhD? What was the process and the process of becoming an assistant professor of counseling as well? Sure. So before I shifted into the academic circles, I was practicing as a counselor. So I had worked as a school counselor, a clinical mental health counselor, and like you saw, a career counselor. Um, the school counseling is what actually got me into academia. So I thought back then that I wanted to become a district level supervisor for school counselors. And I thought that, you know, would not, not thought it happens. Most district level supervisors are doctors. And so I figured, let me go get advanced training in counselor education and supervision so that I can better support school counselors at the district level. Um, and like, I think most people, at least this is what I've found when you get into the PhD experience, just everything you thought you were going to do is not what you're doing (laughs) it's like the journey just changes and god is like here's really why i brought you here it wasn't what you thought um and so it was actually while i was even though i had done career counseling i would say maybe before my my phd i'd only done it for about a year it was when i was um getting my phd that i worked in a career services center so that's when i really developed my passion for not just career counseling in practice but also career development research and they both feed each other so Throughout my PhDs, I went through the first year, I wanted to be a school counseling director. The second year, I wanted wanted to be a director of career services center. And then by the third year, when I started my dissertation, I was like, wait, this research thing ain't bad. And I could teach. Okay, I like teaching. And so next thing you know, I'm like, I think I want to be a faculty. I knew I did not want to go into an R1 or a teaching university. Uh, So that part I was quite clear on is I wanted that balance. And it was really, I think, maybe I'd say my last year, year and a half of being in the doctoral program that really solidified the decision to go into academia and be a faculty member. And so I applied for faculty tenure track faculty positions. And here I am six years later, which is still wild to say that it's been six years. (laughs) Yes, that's so awesome. It's so interesting. 
I feel like the PhD process is like so like expansive. So you mm -hmm. go in thinking you're going to kind of narrow what you <laughs> are learning. It's like, oh, fine, I get to learn about this one topic and not have to take all of these other classes. But once you like zoom in, you realize there is so much more that I never considered. And I don't know if I've ever met a PhD who actually went into their program for one thing and left the program doing the exact thing they went in for. <laughs> I don't know that I have either. And I think what I recognize is, and this is something I, I even tell my current students, because my program is a graduate program. We have doc students and even just colleagues. It's, you know, I, yes, you might narrow in on a topic, but you develop so many skill sets going through the journey that I think that just expands the possibility of what is available to you is I have all these skills and all these things available to me. I think, yeah, it definitely is an expansive experience. Yeah, it's so cool and it's so unique. And I just, I really value the experience, even though it was, it was tough and I don't think I would ever want to do it again, but I'm so happy <laughs> that I went through it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you are an assistant professor of counseling right now. So you teach mm -hmm. classes. And so I just mm -hmm. kind of want to hear how's this semester going? And so for everyone listening, we're filming this in fall of 2023 and we're like midway through the semester right we so we're like smack dab i think it's week nine for me right now so we just crossed midterm yeah uh, how is semester interesting um i don't want to say it was it's not like my first thought was is it the hardest no last semester spring 23 was the hardest so much was going on like i submitted a federal grant in 12 days it was wild um this <laughs> semester though now i know now i am I just became the coordinator of our doctoral program, Ooh. as well as just some other administrative responsibilities. And so I think that, so I would say this semester has been a shift because I've had new responsibilities added on when, you know, for me really, I've always been about the teaching, the research, let's just go, but the service has expanded a little bit. And so I'm still, I think maybe this week, because we just had fall break, this is the first week I came in feeling like, okay, <laughs> it's like, I, I caught up on some work. I have my list for the week. I know what I'm doing each day. And so it's like, it took me nine weeks to get here. And even that it's just, I think a different level of expectation being the coordinator of a whole program. And so um, how is this semester going so far? It's interesting. It's an adjustment. I'm still learning who I am with these new responsibilities, I think mm -hmm. is how I would summarize that. Oh, I totally feel that. I get that. Last year, I became the Calculus One coordinator for my department. I decided not mm -hmm. to do it this year, but <laughs> it was an adjustment to adjust mm -hmm. from teaching only to now I have this mm -hmm. administrative work, this leadership position. Mm -hmm. It was just a different um, mindset I had to go into the week with. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind sharing a bit more about your workload? So before you um, got this new um, responsibility, what was your teaching to research? workload then mm -hmm. and then now that you have this new responsibility how has it changed right it has not changed so i'm still my my institution is a 40 40 20 so 40 teaching 40 research 20 service mm -hmm. and i'm still a 40 40 20 because technically even though i'm a doc program coordinator it's not it's just for my program so it's not like like for example our department chairs they get research releases because it's mm -hmm. it's seen at the college level as a full-on administrative role mm -hmm. and so 
I, th this is just now a part of my service. And so coming into the semester, I was intentional. I was, I was doing quite a bit of national service that I started to off board onto other people. Cause I, you know, I was the co-chair and co-founder of quite a few, so, um, just interest groups and things like that. And so knowing that I was, I was taking on this role as well as running this federal grant, I knew that my research and my service were getting bigger but my expectation is still a 40, 40, 20. And so I just looked where else I could cut out service because of this new service role that was coming in. Yes, I love that you made room for the new responsibility <laughs> instead of just tacking on. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I, I learned, I think it was maybe my third year review, they had told me that, because um, we do it, we get to do a review to prepare you for tenure. And one of the feedback I had gotten was, you're doing a lot of service. And I was like, I bet. And so I just started about like hardcore boundaries saying no to things. And I remember last, I think it was last year, I was doing a like a review with my chair. And she was like, I love this about you. And it's still so frustrating, but how hard your boundaries are. And I was like, yep, I don't play with my boundaries. <laughs> oh, I feel that deeply. Yes. I yes, yes, so yes. well and so happily and so comfortably. Like, I'm not doing that. So, yes, say it louder because like people feel that, especially if you haven't gotten tenure yet, that you have to say yes to everything, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you really don't. You really don't, especially if you know your, your percentages, like the service is not going to bump your chances of getting tenure. So focus on the things that really does impact that journey. And that's what I did. Exactly. I love that. So what about the teaching this semester? How many classes are you teaching? What are those classes? What are the demographics mm -hmm. of the students? Two, thank God, still two. And neither of them is a new prep, which is great because I have a new prep next semester. Um, I teach, this semester I'm teaching our helping relationship skills class. So this is where our students are learning the actual technical skills of doing counseling. So this is more of, this is pretty much their first, actually their first clinical course. It's not clinical in that they're not seeing clients, but they're learning the clinical skills and leads them into other clinical courses. So that class. And I'm teaching, why did I just lose it? Ethics. So it's, it's called... Um, what is it? What is the? I always forget like the official names of classes. We just call it ethics, like mm -hmm. professional issues and ethics in counseling. So this one is it's so interesting that I'm saying it out loud because this one is first year students new to the program, learning about professional identity, ethical issues in the counseling field. Demographics are similar. So our because our program is a graduate program, we have a master's well a master's program with two specialties and a doctoral program. So most all our students are graduate students, but even that one thing that I know we are really proud of as a program is our demographic is quite diverse. Whether we look at age, gender, um, racial, um, racial status, all of that. When I think specifically of age, we have traditional college age students. So they have come straight from college, undergrad, and they're coming into master's. But we also have career changers. So people who have been working for years and have come into their master's program. So like right now, I think I have anywhere from, if I were gonna just ballpark their ages across my two classes, anywhere from 22 year olds to 48 year olds okay. in my class. So it's very diverse and my classes are always diverse that way just by nature of who we attract, we are a flexible program. Um, so yes, I'm teaching those two classes. And you know, I said neither, neither of those are a new prep. So those are, it's good to be teaching. Ethics is one of my favorite ones to teach because they're new to the program. They always have a million and one questions. I mean, this is the class where I never get through my slides because they have a million and one questions. So <laughs> <laughs> all the content. And then skills, that demographic, it, they're further along in the program, but that class 
I was actually, both of them have high anxiety for a different reason. The skills course is a gatekeeping course. So because they are demonstrating the skills, it, this is the point in which if they can't demonstrate the skills, we may advise them in a different professional direction. And they are informed of that early in the semester. And so um, I think that one brings some anxiety knowing that now they have to demonstrate, right? It's not just writing a paper or writing your thoughts. You have to show something and that brings some anxiety for the students, but they're both fun classes to teach. Oh, yeah, I definitely understand the anxiety that students have when it comes to showing. I get that very early on, very early on in the math courses that I teach. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just, you know, write down and follow the process. <laughs> you have to think and apply. Mm-hmm. So, so let, let's talk about what you do in your class. So I teach undergraduate students, mostly introductory level classes. So I'm teaching a lot of freshmen. So I'm doing a lot mm-hmm. of active learning to get them engaged. And I'm also kind of like indoctrinating them into the college experience. So I do a lot mm-hmm. of metacognition and things in my class. But I'm mm-hmm. so excited to hear about your experience teaching graduate students. And so mm-hmm. I ask, so the thing that we do on this podcast is we discuss uh, professors' most effective teaching strategies and yours mm-hmm. are relationship building and flipped classrooms. So I would love to mm-hmm. hear about how you use that in your teaching. For sure. If I start with relationship building, you know, I think I always thought initially, I always thought that this was intuitive, common knowledge, self, self-explaining, so to speak. But this past semester, I actually did a my campus offered a certificate on culturally responsive teaching. Um, it was an application only thing and I went for it because I just, I actually, teaching is my favorite part of my job. And so I'm always doing all these, it's, it's a faculty learning community. And so there were was a small group of us and you know we shared different things. And I remember when I would talk about some of the relationship things I did, the other faculty would be like, oh, tell me more. And I just thought everybody isn't doing this. And I realized that it's a couple of things. One, it's the counselor in me where relationships are just part of what we do, but also two, because I teach graduate classes, my largest class is 40 students in any given semester. And I know some of my colleagues who are doing undergrad, they have hundreds of students. So it's very different in that sense of just the the gamma, the space or the amount of relationships you need to build, so to speak. Um, But what I have found consistently and when I look at my teaching evaluations outside of the energy I bring to the classroom, which I think helps the relationship, um, I think just students have often talked specifically about feeling seen and heard in my class, and that's intentional for me. So every semester, one thing I do is by like week three or four, I need to know every student's name. And I've I'm, I've been quite successful with that. Now, once the semester's over, it leaves my brain and I forget all the names. But when we are in the semester, I know I know who you are and where you're sitting. And then when they, like in the first two weeks when they change seats, I'll be like, dang it, you changed your seat. And they'll laugh. I'll just make jokes. And I think that's part of the relationship building is where I just make even just random side comments. Or even on the very first day when I introduce myself and introduce the class, I talk about how, I'll tell them how, you know, this is, all my classes are highly interactive. I want them to talk to me. Um, I don't like lecturing at students. We do lots of dialogue. And I'll say something to them like, so if I ask you a question and you stare at me in silence, I'm a counselor. I'm comfortable with silence. So I'll stare at you and it'll be awkward and we'll just look at each other and they'll laugh. And that (laughs) laughter already just breaks, it it breaks the ice a little bit where they're like, okay, she's a bit chill. Um, And then I even think with when I think of that relationship is them also seeing me as not just this power up here that has the knowledge. So sometimes even with counseling, when I'm given random examples, I'll use Chick-fil-A as an example of a skill, right? If I want to talk about how do you reflect a feeling, I might say, oh, I think Chick-fil-A is the best sandwich and I prefer it over McDonald's. And they'll laugh <laughs> at just hearing me talk about Chick-fil-A. They'll be like, what? 
but they heard the skill that I was trying to teach. And so I, I like to do, I would say just small things like that, that show the human being behind the professor, but also helps them see, feel seen. So in talking about random things that are, that I think um, build that foster, that interaction, that's one. Um, I also use a ton of cooperative learning strategies to facilitate that relationship. So not just the relationship between me and them, but for them to build relationships with one another. So think pair shares are, are a big one for me, three minute review. So for anyone who doesn't know, so a think pair shares when I ask the question, I had them think of a response, pair up with somebody to share your answer, and then we share out loud as a group. And then the three minute review, when I have time, because we talk so much that I rarely ever get to the end, but it's just a quick get with a partner and do a three minute review of the class. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll have driven questions of what are you taking away and what questions are still lingering, or just what did you learn that was new or what surprised you in the reading? Just, some, just a three minute review of the learning for the week. And I I'm intentional about getting them talking to each other. Sometimes even when we're about to do an activity, you know, I'll say, look around the classroom, find somebody you've never talked to before, and now that's your partner for this activity. And I'll remind them before you start, make sure you introduce yourself first and then do the, the project. And so really just helping them foster that relationship also, because I think that helps the learning, not just how they feel in interaction with me, but when you can turn to the person next to you and ask a question or have conversation or share ideas, um, that really brings them into the moment, into the room, allows them to feel seen and builds that community. And then we can do communal learning. And I have consistently found that that process makes it makes teaching more enjoyable for me and for the students. It's because for me, it's, you know, I come in, for example, I think of last week when I went into class, I hadn't seen them in two weeks. And just something as small as saying, I feel like I haven't seen y'all in forever, even though it's been a week. And then they laugh. And I'm, I think one of my goals is every time if my students can laugh at least once without me intentionally telling a joke, <laughs> that to me is a win, <laughs> right? Yes. Like it's just, cause to me, I think just laughter is like, ooh, like once you laugh, your body just, your, your, your physiological system just comes down a bit, right? If you're laughing, your brain tells you you're safe. And so if they can feel safe in the room, they're more, they're more available to learn. And so every time they chuckle or laugh a little bit, for me, that's a win because it's okay. They're here, they're present, they're feeling safe, which means they're they're available to learn. And so that's what I would say relationship building looks like for me. I think that's so awesome. And I loved all the things you said because all of these things are very small. And mm -hmm. like it can be easy to see a word like or words like relationship building. And you think you have to sit down and have these 30-minute conversations with every single mm -hmm. student, but it's really the small smallest things that the students mm -hmm. latch on to, like knowing the names, having them talk mm -hmm. to each other, breaking the ice, showing that you're a human being. It's so funny. They laugh at the strangest things that are like <laughs> so small. I remember <laughs> I was getting over a cold and so I had been mm -hmm. sick, but then I got better and mm -hmm. it was just the last residuals of me having a cold and I was up at the board talking mm -hmm. and I said, oh, one second. And so I ran out the classroom because my nose started to run a little bit. <laughs> so I had to, you know, dab my nose. So I came back. I was like, sorry, guys, my nose started running. When I started teaching, I get warm. And then <laughs> thought that was so funny because they're like, why did she just run out this room? <laughs> and so my students always remember that. And it really kind of makes them see, oh, she's a person. I can talk to her. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, I love that. I love that you mm -hmm. are so um, dedicated to building those relationships with your students and building the culture of the classroom that's like inclusive and mm -hmm. um, making it like a safe environment for learning for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I love mm -hmm. that. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. So sure. uh, 
Yes, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and I think it definitely is the small things. I remember, for example, when COVID happened and we had to pivot, during that period, every class, I would spend a good five to 10 minutes just checking in on them and reminding them of their self-care. And that showed up in my evaluations as one of the few instructors who took the time to check in on them. I remember thinking that just to me, that that's so maybe when I say small things and just basic human, human, humanity, I don't know if that, that's not the right word. It's not humanity, but it's like, maybe be, again, it's the counseling. Humanness? So, well, <laughs> I think where I'm getting at is one of the things we learn as school counselors is that Children can't learn if they're not available to learn emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, right? So if they don't feel safe, if they're hungry, if they haven't eaten, if they were abused and you bring them into school, they're not learning math, they're not learning science because they don't feel safe. And I think so for me, that is even at when, when teaching adults, if you're sitting in my classroom and you're worried about the bills or about the child who's sick or the mom who's sick, whatever it may be, if you're thinking about life and how the world is burning outside, it feels that way, you're not hearing anything I'm teaching you. And so I think just even that check-in, it shows that you care, but also on the instructor side, if you don't take that moment, they're going to be thinking about all the outside stuff when you're talking and they're not learning from you. But yeah. then when you do that, not only are they learning, it shows that you can. I think that helps with that relationship building also. Mm, yeah, that's so good. I love that. Um, you reminded me of one thing that I did when I was teaching online during the pandemic, um, just to make sure they were all there. I would do like attendance, but I would do these attendance questions. So something that was fun yeah. and that showed mm -hmm. up in my evaluations at the end. They're uh -huh. like, oh, we love the attendance questions. I was like, really? I didn't <laughs> y'all were just like mindlessly typing in the answer oh uh, yeah I'm a morning person not a night person but they really connected with that they like talking about themselves and me having uh -huh. interest and then me relating to their answers so oh gosh I love that you bring that up so I should add one more thing because my no, students love this and I should do it again <laughs> it's like it, it was sort of attendance but it was a check-in it was something like and I did different ones one of them was you know if you had to describe how you're feeling today as a drink, what would it be? Ooh. And so they had it, I knew it, and I actually did that in my in-person class. And some would say, some would say things like champagne because I just got married, or some would say water because it's just a blah day, or coffee because I'm hype. But it's just fun. And then, but they laugh when they explain the things. And I remember in one class, it said, if you were a dessert, like if you had to say how you're feeling in a dessert, what would it be and why? So just random things like that where, but then when they talk about the why, it leads to just, again, just breaking that ice and bringing them into the moment and just share something random that has nothing to do with what you're about to teach. I think those fun, those fun like check-ins or, or attendance things are, are good too. Yes, I'm going to steal those questions. Those are way more creative <laughs> than mine. That was a great question. I love that a lot. Yeah. I think the students, my students would enjoy that. I have freshmen mostly. Yeah. They would love that. The other thing, because sorry, because you have freshmen, this is the last one and we'll move yeah. on, I promise. If you use um, anything like, um, what is it called? Like those, um, like mentee or poll, like poll everywhere where they can respond. Mm -hmm. I've also done in one of my classes, how are you feeling today as an emoji? And so when they bring up their phone and they answer, they're putting emojis up. And so just seeing the emojis pop up are funny and they would put <laughs> random things and then just talking through, but you don't know who's is which. And that is also just fun to process. That is very, very fun. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's a great one. If anyone's listening and you use clickers and Mentimeter and stuff like that, mm -hmm. that's a fun one. All right, so let's talk about flipped classrooms. Are all of your classes yes. flipped or do you choose no. specific courses to flip? Mm -hmm. Tell us. Right now, that. just one of my classes is flipped. It's my career development course. I flipped it, I think it's been flipped two semesters in a maybe three semesters in a row now. So it's a new, it didn't start a flip. Um, I think it was maybe after the pandemic that I flipped it, so to speak. And 
I love it so much because first of all, and at the most basic level, it means I'm showing up to teach only every other week. So that's just like the basic level of your schedule and your life is it built in a break for me. But also it allows us to be so much more active and interactive in the class. And so in that class, I tell them from the jump, I'm not going to be lecturing in class. The lectures are recorded. The activities are recorded. The weeks that we have off is so that you're using that time to watch the recording, to do the readings, to, to prep for the class. And if you don't do that work, when you show up to class, you're going to feel left out because you will not understand what's going on. And so that's the thing about andragogy, which that's, you know, when we're teaching adults with andragogy is the why is really important. You have to, when you tell adults why what you're teaching them matters, they are a lot more bought in. And even I think of just feedback, many students talked about loving the flipped nature. And so for anyone who's not uh, familiar, the idea of flipped classroom, it's where the teaching and the lecture so to speak, happens outside of class. And so in class, now the traditional ways in class, the work is being done. And so I think in K-12 schools, for example, in class, instead of doing homework, they do the homework in class, or um, that's the main one. Now my students still have assignments, papers that they do outside of class because graduate school. But because of the nature of the career counseling course, I a lot of what we teach like the first half of the class is very theoretical. We're learning career development theories. And the second half is very practical. We're learning how to do career counseling. And I quickly realized that when I was teaching the class normally, I didn't have enough time to teach them and do the examples in class. It was just, it did not work. Even though our classes are about two hours and 40 minutes, I still didn't have enough time. And so what I started, what I did with the flip is now I take multiple topics. So maybe instead of what would have learned over two weeks. They learn it outside classroom a week ahead. Again, I've recorded the lecture, they've read the chapters. Um, I start all my classes with the quiz, which we'll come back to. And so when we come in class, for example, if they've learned about a theory, then in class, we are doing an activity that shows that theory. Whether there's an assessment tied to the active, to the theory, they're completing it as if they were the client. They're partnering and doing role plays. They are, we are looking up data and discussing. So I, I don't lecture in class itself. And I find that the reason why I found that so helpful is the, for me, I believe the practice is where they learn the most in the, oh, okay, so I read about Holland theory, which talks about how people need to fit their environment to enjoy their career. But then I came in class and I did an assessment that showed me my top three areas. And I was surprised by one of those. Now they're going to remember those codes when they see that on an exam, because for licensure as counselors, they have to take multiple exams. And so a lot of this theory that can be dense and heavy shows up on exams and I think in the past, students struggled to remember like theories, names, the theoretical concepts. It was just a lot of jargon for them. And so now when we are learning in class, that theory comes to life. And I think that allows them to then sort of um, solidify that knowledge, that concept, because there's this practice that they're tying the knowledge to, whether it's results, something they learned about themselves, something they did with a friend, they can tie the knowledge to something, sort of create these um, uh, cognitive maps for themselves, cognitive rooms where they can put the information based on the practice that we did. And so that's why I've really enjoyed flipping that career class, especially because it was so theory heavy. Talking to them about theory in class, I did not like it. And one thing I've even heard students say a lot since I flipped it is some students love reading the book. The book is good for them. Quite a good number of students will say 
the book didn't make sense until I watched the lecture. So when they heard me talk about the theory, then it made sense. And so for me, it's if I'm teaching in class, they can't pause me, they can't rewind me, they can't speed me up, they can't slow me down. I've said it, the information has gone, they can feel behind and, or they might be trying to process what I just taught and I'm teaching something else. Mm -hmm. And so when they're watching this lecture, they can pause, rewind, what did she just say? Write it down, reflect on it. And, and I remember even, this was feedback, when I first started doing my lectures, I think they were just, I don't even remember, maybe I just posted them on Canvas. And I don't even remember how it came up, but ultimately the feedback, I moved them to YouTube and put the link up intentionally. I would tell them that is intentionally so you can slow me down or speed me up. Mm -hmm. I told them, and I, this is again, relationship building. I'm like, but I already talk really fast. So if you're speeding me up, wow, I'm, I'll be surprised. <laughs> and they'll laugh at that. But I intentionally put it on the platform where they could change the speed because, and then made the slides available too, so they can follow along with the PowerPoints that I'm recording, but then they can, they can, they can consume the lecture at their own pace. And so it, that to me, I think was an unexpected benefit because for me, I flipped it so we could do more in class. But I think that with the lectures being recorded, they are learning at their own pace and picking up the information a bit more and really understanding what they've just read about. So those are just some of the few different reasons why I have really loved flipping um, my career class. I don't know if I'll flip any others yet, just by nature. For example, another class I would have flipped is this ethics when I'm teaching, but because they're new students, I want them to be seeing me every week as opposed to career. And so I haven't seen any other classes yet that I would flip, but I really love the career class in the current format that I have it. I love that. So I flipped one of my classes as well. And one of the unintentional benefits, like you said, is the accessibility of the class goes mm -hmm. up. People learn in mm -hmm. so many different ways. Some people reading the book is enough, but some people need mm -hmm. to read the book, watch and listen to the lecture, write their own notes, reread their own notes. Mm -hmm. It's it just people learn in so many different ways and having that option of a lot of modes for people to, mm -hmm. to learn in is just like amazing. And mm -hmm. yeah, I love my flipped class. Um, yes. The in-class stuff just becomes so much more rich and the students mm -hmm. are able to connect. I like what you said about the theory versus like the practice and just like speaking mm -hmm. the theory all day. It's like they don't know when to use it, how to use it, when it's going to come up, how to recall it because it's very dry, very dense. Um, I was listening to a podcast where someone was sharing how um, her son was learning how to drive and mm -hmm. he really needs time on the road practicing the driving because like you can read the driver's manual and pass the driver's test, but until you're trying to make a left turn and the light turns green and you try to turn and you see these cars coming at you, yield, <laughs> and that forms that connection. Like, oh, this, you know, you know, you should yield, but until you're actually doing it, you can actually make that connection. So, absolutely. Thanks for sharing about the flip class. I am a big for advocate sure. of that. Uh, so let's transition a bit because you don't just teach in the university. You have a coaching practice, which I call self-hosted mm -hmm. learning experience. You call coaching where you coach mm -hmm. women and help them find um, a more fulfilling career and you help them with their job search process. So when did you decide to create this business called Her Career Doctor? I know many of you have probably heard it if you are watching this <laughs> amazing business. I love reading all about what you're doing. Um, but yeah, oh, thank when you. did you get started here? I got started my second semester as a faculty member. Um, was it 
no yes yes actually yes second semester the faculty member and that was mostly because i loved the teaching but very quickly into teaching i was like i miss working with clients because i remember i had come from practice right even throughout my doctoral program i was serving clients so i i was seeing clients i was like i was seeing clients i came into academia i was still seeing clients and then i came into faculty and it was a full semester of just teaching which i love but I missed the I missed client work. I love career counseling so much and not doing it felt weird. And I remember so clearly like my first semester asking my chair at the time, like, are there any rules against having my own business? <laughs> like, I just I didn't want any I didn't want any smoke. And back then I was new. Right. Like now I'm very much asked for forgiveness, not permission. But back then I was new. I was doing things. And she's like, you know what? No, as long as you're, you're doing your job here and, and my university's rule is um, no more than eight hours a week being spent on the other thing, then you're fine. I was like, oh, bet I could do this. And so, yes, I got started in my second semester as a faculty uh, when I realized that I still I missed working with clients and I wanted to keep doing that. And I wanted the additional source of income. If y'all don't know this yet, academia does not pay that well, especially not if you are in a college of education, which I am like the business <laughs> IT, they get paid well, those faculty members get paid well, but college of ed in a public institution, child, I mean, I get same here with the math. I don't know. I'm like years promotion adds to it. But still, if you are someone who desires generational wealth, who desires uh, financial freedom, um, you can certainly do it. I think you can certainly do it on just on, on our salary. But also, I know the kind of lifestyle that I like. I like to travel. I like nice things, you know. And so, um, I also wanted the additional source of income. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yes, I love that. So I love that you mentioned like you. You kind of felt like something was missing in. So funny that you started in your second semester. That's when I started my business in my second really? semester of teaching. <laughs> because you mentioned earlier, like in the PhD process, we learn all of these skills and we acquire mm -hmm. these new skills to get through the process. But then when you get your teaching position, you don't really use all of use the skills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there's some things that you think is like common knowledge and you realize, oh, no one else knows how to do this thing that comes mm -hmm. so naturally to me that I'm kind of an expert in that I didn't realize, like you mentioned with your faculty learning community and like mm -hmm. how you were building relationships with your students and people had mm -hmm. no idea of how to do this. Mm -hmm. And so we have these like skills, these other things, and we want these like extra um, ways to receive fulfillment that isn't just mm -hmm. tied to our academic work. So can you share about your, I know you have like two main programs, right? Coaching programs. It's now program? one. Oh, gosh. oh now It one. became one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's just the one as of August. And, and that was part of the shift was I knew I was coming into a semester with new responsibilities um, because I was going to be doc program coordinator. I was going to have this federal grant that I was running and I was still going to have to teach. So I knew it was a lot. And I just it's like I looked at my life. And I was like, I can't run two programs and still show up at my job in excellence. So it's now one program. It's a one six month career coaching program that is specifically for women who are unhappy on their current career path, unhappy in their job. And they have no idea what else they will do. So that makes them feel stuck. They have no idea which of their skills are transferable. And so they have no idea what else they would do, which makes them feel stuck. And they don't know how to market themselves. And so the goal of the entire program is to help them get clear about who they are so they can figure out their most aligned and fulfilling career paths. We definitely have options. And then we pick one in the program. And then I 
navigate them through four months on average of just intentional job searching with me there as a support. And so I'm providing them with everything they need from resume templates to couple letter templates to interview scripts to negotiation scripts. We use evidence-based assessments. So it's really this comprehensive program to take you from feeling unhappy at work to finding and securing a fulfilling job with at least a five-figure salary increase. And so that's the program. It's called Find Your Fulfilling Career. I love that. That's so necessary. I'm so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, hmm, that sounds kind of good. How do people know if they should consider a career change? Oh, man, there are so many different reasons. I think I'll start with the most common ones. It's is when you notice that your physical and mental health are starting to be impacted. So on the physical health side, what I've seen some of my women experience when they come to me, they're either losing or gaining weight, their hair is falling out, they're experiencing skin issues, they have uh, ulcers, they're experiencing insomnia. Um, One woman passed out at work because of the stress, so fainting. Yeah, it's. I think people often underestimate the impact of a terrible job. So those are the physical piece. On the mental health side, when you start seeing that you're experiencing higher self-doubt, more anxiety, more depression, lower creativity, lower motivation, lower engagement. You're just like, blah. Like you just notice yourself when you wake up, you dread every day when you go in, you dread it. When you come home, you have no energy. And then you start to see both of those things impact your relationships. So you're complaining more, you're fighting more, you don't have time for your kids, for your family. When you start to see all those life impacts, that's the by far the biggest, the red flag to listen, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Some other things is I know that there have been some women who on paper, what they had looked like a good job. The title was there, the pay was there, they were getting paid well, but they're still unhappy. And so when the money is the only part that is keeping you going, like you literally are waiting just for a payday, that's a big red flag because I always say like the money will make you feel good for a hot second, but that that high is going to crash and then you still have hours and months and days and weeks to be in that job where it's not payday. So that money is is not, it doesn't last. And, and you know, there's a book called The Second Mountain. So it's called Second Mountain where it talks about multiple um just people who reached what would have been thought of as the pinnacle of their career and left and came down to climb what is their second mountain, which was a career that was more meaningful for them. And so um, I know I'm one of the people, like I always say, when people say money can't buy happiness, it's a lie. Money can buy things that make you happy. And at the same time, money alone cannot make you happy. It can buy the things, but at some point it can't fill the hole. Also, I would say when you just start to find that you don't feel like you're contributing to the world with your career. You don't feel like you're doing meaningful work. You don't feel like you're being impactful because what that starts to do is makes you start to question your purpose on earth when, when you're not doing meaning. Because remember, y'all, we spend 40 hours minimum a week at work. And most of you, feel like, if you have a PhD, you are high achieving. You are working more than 40 hours. I can almost <laughs> promise that. And so imagine spending all that time being unhappy. The math has been done. If you're, if you're doing the bare minimum of 40 hours, over your lifetime, that's 90,000 hours that you'll spend at work. And so I always say it makes zero sense to be miserable for that much of your time. So those are some of the, the I would say, easy signs where when you're seeing all these effects and you know it's because of your job, then it's probably time to make a change. Oh, I love that. Oh, my goodness. OK, so I know we're getting close to the end time, but I do want to ask, Do you, if someone is feeling that way, like, hmm, I feel like I'm unfulfilled in my career. I'm not happy. It's affecting my life. Is there a good first action step that women can take when they are considering a career change? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first action step is to just get clear about what it is you don't like about your current job. 
a lot of times we will be unhappy at work and then just start job searching, try to find something else. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed that ends that ends up leading to is cycles of bad jobs. The next thing you end up to, you hate it. And then now you're in this vicious cycle. Just start by pausing and really clarifying what don't I enjoy? Is it my daily work tasks? Is it the relationship with my manager, with my coworkers? Is it the commute? Is it the pay? Is it the hours? Like what are the actual things that make you unhappy? Because when you get that clarity, then it's easier to move forward and and avoid similar roles. And there's a whole other, you know, more things that you'll do. But if that's the only thing you do first, it's get that clarity about what it is you don't like. Ah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. I think that's a wonderful first action step because I kind of did that when I was going through my PhD program. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my PhD. Mm. I just knew I loved math. I kept choosing things. I was like, "Mm, this is not quite right. Mm, This is not quite a good fit. And it wasn't until I was a graduate teaching assistant and taught Mm. my first class that I was like, this is it. This is all I want to do. And Mm. I feel so like blessed that I was able to find the career right off the bat that I love Mm. so much that I'm Mm. so happy with and so fulfilled by. And I just want everyone to experience that. Like to mm-hmm. go to work excited every day, most people don't experience that. So I love yeah. the work that you're doing. Thank you so Thank much you. for sharing that. Um, I do have one final question. I always like to ask everyone. So for anyone who's listening, who may be new as a college instructor, do you have any final little bit of teaching advice that you think would be helpful for them? Um, I think I'm just going to spot off a few. One you know more than you think you do own this one. Let me back up because this one is especially, I would say specifically for women and women of color who are listening because I've seen it happen to so many of my um, students who are in this process. You, if you're standing right there in front of your students, you belong in that spot. And in that moment, you are the one who holds the power. And there's nothing wrong with holding the power in that room, because if you have a compassionate heart, you will not use the power for harm. But when you own your power, then you show up more confident, which then helps the learning experience. And I remember this because I told one of my doctoral students this just two weeks ago, and it just came to me in the moment. But when you as an instructor are standing in front of your students and you are not confident, you rob your students of their learning experience because your lack of confidence will show. And if you're not confident now, they're sitting there doubting that you know what you're talking about as opposed to learning from you. And so you have robbed them of the ability to actually learn. So you need to embody that confidence. Even if you don't feel it, you're just not, even if you're just one step, you just, you just read the chapter today and you're ready to teach it to them. You are one step ahead of them, right? Like just own that because when you're not confident, then it, you're not, you don't get to transfer that knowledge well to your students and then you're doing them a disservice. That's, that's one. Again, Yes, you get more confident and comfortable with time. And so just just keep doing it and and don't don't be afraid to change things in your teaching. There's not one way to do it. Figure out your own style. Figure out how you like to teach. Um, oh, don't read from PowerPoints, y'all. Don't ever read from at, at no point is anybody going to enjoy that. You can use PowerPoints, but don't read from them. The students are going to be bored. They're going to wonder why they're sitting there in front of you. Like that is like one of the biggest faux pas in teaching is reading slides to your students. Absolutely do not do it. I think I'll just leave it at those, those tips for now. Oh, that's great. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Tega Edwin for joining us on the Good Teaching Podcast. Where can the people find you and get to know you a little bit more online? 
Definitely hercareerdoctor.com is my website. If you search her career doctor, I probably will be the only one who comes up. I'm most often on Instagram. So her career doctor on Instagram is the easiest way to find me. Um, it's a social media site I'm on the most and so willing to slide in my DMs, ask questions, I'm happy to do that. So just find me hercareerdoctor.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for watching or listening. We will see you in the next one. Happy teaching. Oh, yeah.